Welcome to Talk Iran. This is Salman Askeri. Today's guest is Maral Karimi. Maral is the author of a book called The Iranian Green Movement of 2009. She's currently pursuing a PhD in social justice education at the University of Toronto. She specializes in media and communication studies with a special interest in Iranian and Middle Eastern politics, where she is interested in examining the role of media in general in political communications in particular in regards to social movements. Her book is based on her master's dissertation at York University. Besides the Green Movement and the concepts in her book, Maral and I discuss the overall state of the reform movement in Iran, the alternatives to reform, how the recent protests in the country compare to the 2009 protests, the various opposition groups in exile, and other topics. So without further ado, let's listen in to my conversation with Maral Karimi. I want to start with talking about your book, The Iranian Green Movement of 2009, is its title. Uh, the Green Movement was what happened after the 2009 Iranian presidential elections. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was re-elected, and as a result, millions of people poured out onto the streets, claiming that the results were fraudulent. So what was so significant about this movement, and why did you decide to write a book about it? Well, there's a long answer, and there's a short answer to that. Um, the short answer is that it came uh, out of my master's dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote my master's dissertation around, um, st- I started writing it right around uh, the 2009 uh, Green Movement. And later on, um, once I started my doing my PhD, I decided to turn it into a book. And in order for me to do that, I, I thought it would uh, provide more context, a better sort of description to the audience if I put it in a, a historical context, in a um, comparative perspective, and compare the Green Movement to the Islamic Revolution, which, because the Green Movement was the most significant uprising post-revolution, it was the most popular one. So I decided to compare the two. But the long answer uh, will be that this is my personal journey to answer my own questions about my my identity and um, what is going on in my life and why do I live the life of an immigrant and questions that formed really early in my life. Um, I often tell people when they ask me, you know, tell us about yourself. I always say um, I was born between a revolution and a war. So really turbulent times and that sort of and that um, environment really shapes one's perspective of social justice. And, um, you know, the, it was a very highly political environment that many of us were born in. So obviously uh, those questions stay with us and we carry them through our lives. And at some point in my life, I decided, OK, this is this is my calling. This is my vocation. And I'm going to answer these questions. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the dissertation and then the book came out of that. Uh, the the event, the Green Movement itself, was a very compelling event in Iranian history in the sense that there was wide usage of social media. Social media was used as sort of the medium to uh, get people involved, to kind of spur the movement in a sense. What were some of the, the factors that made that movement so compelling? Some even argue that it was sort of the precursor to the Arab Spring, um, so can you talk about, you know, what was so important about the Green Movement? 
what was very significant to me in what uh, brought me on the path of focusing on the green movement was first and foremost, um, the many reports in the news media and the many analysis by the pundits and analysts and politicians that I was reading. Um, and at the time I was working in Canada's largest media company. So, you know, surrounded by analysts and TV um, monitors that constantly played everything. And it was, I was already highly politicized. I was already in, uh, interested. And what, what, what I was reading was really bothering me. The fact that they were dubbing this a Twitter revolution, I'm not sure if you remember. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a social media revolution because for the first time, um, it was reported that um, a social uprising is um, utilizing social media to this extent to facilitate their communications. And it was bothering me because, you know, I'm trained in media studies and I could tell you that no media causes revolution. Media facilitate the communications, but they don't cause revolutions. They don't cause social uh, uprisings. But that, so that, that was one um, aspect that got me really interested in studying the green movement and from a media perspective, communication perspective. The second one was obviously, like you said, I'm in the camp that believe that believes um, the green movement was the precursor to the Arab Spring, mm. the wave that took over the Middle East. If you look back at the Iranian history, and that's why I'm, I argue in the book, and that's why I have, despite the fact that the green movement happened in 2009, I have the, the cover photo that I have it from the last uh, January 2017 uh, sorry, uh, December 2017, January 2018 um, protest. The, the image of the woman that is on the uh, cover of the book is from recent protests because it's a cyclical. There's a cyclical characteristic to these all these protests. And I think that uh, that characteristic uh, kind of lives throughout the Middle East. So these protests came in Iran and kind of took over, although with a delay, and throughout the rest of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And in each country, obviously, they were different. And they had, uh, they took their own life lives and, you know, they live differently now. The results are different. So I want to talk a little bit about that. I actually want to talk about how the movement in 2009 compares to the recent protests that have happened in Iran. But before we get there, what were the immediate after effects of the Green Movement? Because... Ahmadinejad obviously stayed president. Nothing really happened afterwards that was, you know, transformative in any way. But did that movement sort of change the trajectory of events within within Iran, uh, do you think? And if so, how so? Yes and no. Depends on which segments of the population we talk about. There were certain segments of the population that uh, were really disillusioned with the reform movement. And that's Partly what I argue, um, uh, once uh, once the reform, uh, once the green movement um, kind of uh, faltered, and my argument is the um, they faltered because certain segments of the population during that uh, you know weeks and months of the protests became disillusioned with the movement. Second, 
and this uh, this illusionment had vast far-reaching implications for the country uh, not just uh, not simply the faltering of the movement many 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 people whom i knew back home or knew through friends who would have swore up and down that they would never leave the country had to leave they simply decided um, especially in the middle class they decided this is no longer where i can live of course um, especially university students many of them were imprisoned tortured or um, you know their lives was impacted because they couldn't go, go back to school because of that so depending on the segments of the population that we talk about it the impact was different However, I don't think it was, and this is my opinion, that it was as significant in terms of the, uh, the trajectory of the government or how it operates. It wasn't as significant as what happened last January. I see. What, have, really, what, what do you mean by that? Um, I don't think it really, yes, there was uh, masses of people, hundreds of thousands of people on the street, but I don't think it really shook the regime as much as it did in January. Okay, let's let's talk about that a little bit, because I've had different people on the podcast, as you know, and we've talked about the recent yeah. protests. And what a lot of people say is that, first of all, the recent protests don't compare to the 2009 protests in terms of scale. They were much more scattered. They weren't as big. You actually, in your recent op-ed that you wrote with Vahid Yusufsoy, whom I've had on the podcast, you called the uh, recent uprisings comparable in scale. So I want to talk a little bit about why you think it's comparable to 2009. And the other thing that people have brought up is the fact that the 2009 protests had a very it was it was structured around a very specific objective it was to protest the re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and the possible fraud that happened in the elections these last round of protests were sort of you know they had no organization they had no leadership they were kind of sort of scattered everywhere so why do you make the claim that these last protests were in fact possibly more significant than the 2009 protests so again um uh, someone, I would go back to saying that we have to um, have a more nuanced look at uh, the crowds that participated in these events. Um, the crowds of the 2009 Green Movement were the middle classes. The demands and the aspirations, uh, both social, political, and economic, of the middle classes are very different than those of the working class, which coincidentally were the crowds of the recent uh, movements mm -hmm. since last December. So the middle classes generally have more, they're, they're not worried about putting food, uh, food on the table, or at least they weren't at that point in time. This is a, right now, these uh, past few months are very different. But, you know, we're, if we're talking about 2009, in 2009, Iranians, middle class Iranians, at least, weren't worried about, uh, like we say in Persian, they weren't worried about their bread. They weren't worried about the rent. So typically speaking, generally, the middle classes have more political aspirations. They, they were more concerned with their, the loss of their political rights that have happened since the 79 revolution. For example, women have lost the right to choose their attire. That's a loss of political right. Mm -hmm. You know, many people have... Uh, lost um, 
their privacy, their right to have a private sphere, meaning the government now for the past 40 years can interfere in your private sphere and tell you you can eat this, drink that, uh, name your child this or, you know, all those restrictions that they put on you. So there are all these political rights that the middle classes have lost and they're uh, rightly concerned with regaining them. So and uh, let's talk about the slogan of the Green Movement. It was, where is my vote, which is highly political. Like you said, it's um, it's to the point. It's um, it has one um, focus and one focus only. So, and you're right, the reformers were the, the leaders of the movement. It was well-organized, it was well-funded, it was the reason we call it green it, it is because it was, it was a concerted marketing if, um, campaign, in a sense. Musavi's mm-hmm. um, um, campaign, campaign yeah. was, uh, I'm a former media marketer, so I, I could see all those elements of green and how intelligently they were placed mm-hmm. um, in the campaign. So the green movement was was very political and it was concerned with the middle class's rights. As opposed to the current, I, would, I keep calling them the current because they keep, you know, erupting. The current, the current eruption is a different uh, phenomenon altogether. Uh, you're right. It's uh, it may be smaller in scale, but it's spread over 75 to 80 cities. It's in the urban. It's not in the urban areas anymore. It's in the periphery. It's by the working class. The slogan uh, at the beginning, at least, um, and I think it's it continues to kind of manifest in um, in uh, in the protests and in the uh, strikes that we see was bread, jobs, freedom. That's a very different political aspiration. That's a a very different demand than where is my vote? Where is my vote in effect legitimizes the political establishment. If you're asking uh, your government for your vote, that means you believe in the system and you have certain grievances. The grievances because, you know, I, I cast I cast my ballot there. Where is my vote now? But the significance of the current protests is because the dispossessed or uh, the Mustazafan, they're the base of the legitimacy of, of the political legitimacy of the system. Um, Ayatollah Khomeini and many others branded the revolution uh, in their names. Mm-hmm. So. Um, to have this base, their base of political and ideological, more importantly, ideological support, be so disgruntled, so disillusioned with them, this is very dangerous, far more dangerous than the middle classes of the green movement, I would think. So what are, yeah, so what are these people actually demanding now? Uh, like like they said in the slogan, they, they want food on the table, they want um, stable jobs, and um, they're, they no longer can afford to live, to put it very simply. They, if they have, they've lost their uh, medical insurances, uh, they can't afford to put food on the table, they can't afford to have a roof over their head or even send their children to school. These basic rights, if you remember Ayatollah Khomeini 
kept promising that, you know, um, and this is you know part of our pop culture now, um, hydro and electricity and water and transportation are all going to be free and the oil revenues are going to be distributed amongst the dispossessed. That has not happened. But are these people actually asking for the ouster of the Islamic Republic? Is that, you know, their end goal? Um, I think not at this point, but at the rate that because not at this point, but at the rate they're going, if they keep going. And um, that's a big if because we're talking about a very repressive uh, regime, um, which is in uh, possession of all sorts of um, torture apparatus. Um, they have the potential at this point. I think they're more concerned with their immediate needs. However, their immediate needs, in my opinion, cannot be accommodated in the current regime. And their leaders uh, know this. They understand this, I think. From what I see and what I hear, they understand this. So does that mean that the uh, Trump administration's policy in terms of pulling out of the nuclear deal and putting further pressure on, on the system in the form of sanctions and so on, it, does that mean that that's working in a way? I don't know if I would say that. I think regime change um, should come from within. Um, no foreign power um, is ever going, whether it's uh, Iran inter intervening in Yemen and Syria or whether it's the United States intervening in Iran, no foreign power is ever doing that for the good of, the good of their heart. Mm -hmm. They're doing that because they have economic, strategic and political interests in, the, uh, in that country. Mm -hmm. So I... I personally don't support that at all. And I think um, the people of Iran should have should be left to their own devices. I know this is wishful thinking, but it should be left to their own devices to uh, make up their own mind and make their own uh, futures and destiny. And um, if anything, Western democracies should uh, support the democratic aspirations of, of people of Iran. So um, the op-ed that I mentioned earlier that you wrote with uh, Vahid, the uh, title of it is The Reformist Project in Iran is Dead. And essentially what you're arguing is that there's not much room left for um, at least the reform movement in the form that it had existed for it to operate and, and make you know meaningful change in that country. Um, so I want to talk about uh, the alternative to reform, right? Because on the one hand, we have people in the country, on the ground, you say that anything that meaningful that needs to happen needs to happen from the inside and people need to do it themselves. Are we calling that reform? Is that what's dead? What If it is dead, then what is the alternative? The alternative um, would be some kind of revolution or maybe some kind of big conflict that would ultimately lead to a completely different form of government. And those other alternatives can potentially be very costly in terms of people's lives and livelihoods and, and many things. Um, it would be painful and, and possibly take many years and it could turn catastrophic as we've seen in other countries. So I have to go back a little bit to answer that question. Um, I... Um... And this is something I argue in the book as well. I personally never thought the reform movement was ever going to be an alternative. 
a democratic alternative, uh, mind you. But I think the Green Movement kind of um, was started to put all the nails in its coffin. It was the beginning of the disillusionment of masses of people with reform. And now after uh, everything that's happening with the JCPOA and uh, all these protests, you see their disillusionment uh, um, on a wider scale. And I go again to the slogans, as you can remember, um, one of the first things that came out in January, December last year was um, reformers, hardliners, it's over. You know, so and that has that had never been said. So that's where I stand. I think I've I never thought reform was viable. I think it's uh, done and over with now. However, we also have to be uh, realistic. The reform movement um, is currently it's a it's a hegemonic power. It's holding its hegemony over the Iranian uh, politics, and I'll explain why. The reason is because we don't have a viable uh, alternative right now. We don't, uh, whether in diaspora or in Iran, there is not not a single organized, uh, theoretically thought out uh, group uh, of people or politicians that could um, sort of um, challenge the of the reform movement. The reason, one of the reasons that reform lasted so long as an alternative is because everybody remembers how costly the revolution was. Everybody remembers how costly the war was. So naturally, many of us, even those of us who weren't born then, are very apprehensive of uh, uh, repeating that cycle. Nobody wants... um, to pay those costs all over again. And so uh, everyone thought if we can bring about um, a more open society, more democratic changes through reform and at a much lower cost, uh, albeit through a much, much longer process, why not? But this this is a movement that is clearly not working. I always argue that it's a distortion. And the other reason that it wasn't exposed for what it is, is the fact that our civil society has been dismantled and repressed so severely by the regime. And we don't have an open public sphere. We cannot debate and um, kind of open up all these discussions about reform or they would have been exposed. They would have had to answer uh, for their um theories and thoughts and doctrines, and they would have been exposed. So that's uh, that's uh, for that. But as opposed to an alternative, I personally don't see an, uh, an alternative at the moment. It doesn't mean that some are not in the shape, in the shaping, some are not in the works somewhere, but I don't see a well-organized. So let me give you an example for uh, whether we hate them or, you know, support them or whatever, the Mujahideen or the MEK or the um, or the various leftist groups of Fadayan and, you know, Pekar and so on uh, during the revolution, or even the Islamists, they were very well organized, very well funded, and they had uh, their pol- uh, political uh, philosophies intact. We don't have that right now. 
so let's talk about some of those alternatives in the form of the various opposition groups. You've mentioned the Mojahedin Echal, but then we have uh, various people who align themselves with the monarchists or are monarchists, essentially. Um, and then there is a new group that was formed called Farash Gad. Can you give us a rundown of this, of these various groups of people who are uh, in these camps and who are they? Um, who are the people behind Farash Gad? What is what are their objectives? How do they compare to the monarchists? Are they essentially monarchists or um, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I can't speak for the group, obviously, but I can tell you what uh, what I understand of them. Uh, Farash Gad, I have a hard time saying that name. It's uh, that word. It's such a difficult word to roll off of your tongue, but. That's what they chose. It's I, to me, they're essentially monarchists. Uh, to me, they don't have um, a well thought out, um, planned out um, political or economic plan. Though, but from what I read and what I hear um, that I'm talking about, they're to the uh, far left. They're not. Um, they say they want a secular government, they want a democratic government, but um, I don't understand how that can be reconciled with the monarchy. I think the people of Iran have spoken out 40 years ago. They don't want a monarchy anymore. And more importantly, I don't understand how uh, Reza Pahlavi is um, going to be a leader of any uh, kind, because that's essentially what these people want for Reza Pahlavi to, um, to lead the way. Mm. I mean, as, and I'll explain why I say what I say, because as, a, as an individual, as a citizen, of course, Reza Pahlavi has every right to uh, participate in the political process, to um, put together a group, to form a group, and um, do as his heart desires. Um, that's so perfectly- so is, he, is he behind forming this group? He is supporting it, seems like. I don't think, uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not privy to that information, so I don't know if he's behind it, but um, he's supporting it. I see. And, but the problem with Reza Pahlavi uh, would be, how do we legitimize him as a, as a leader? He can be a leader for certain people, um, and I would respect that as long as he... Um, would answer uh, for uh, for his father's and his grandfather's um, crimes or mistakes or call it what you will. And simply because, yes, he didn't do them himself, you can't blame um, a son for the sins of the father. However, that's where he's drawing his legitimacy from. Hmm. What is a monarchy if not blood relations? So you're saying I'm uh, Muhammad Reza Shah's son or Reza Shah's grandson and I deserve to be the leader or I should be the leader. So if you're going to go based on that, then you have to answer for that monarchy, which, uh, by the way, is partly to blame for where we are right now. Yeah. What are your thoughts on how popular he actually is or his message is inside Iran? 
I I think there's some anecdotal evidence, there are videos, there are photos, and you know, chants here and there that um, circle around in, the, in social media uh, that suggest he, uh, monarchy is popular. But again, I think people of Iran have uh, spoken 40 years ago, and he is even further out of touch with people with what people on the ground need. His father was. I mean, we're talking about uh, someone who was forced to live in exile since he was 17. And even before that, he didn't live in Iran much. But it's not him personally. I have nothing against him personally, um, nothing but respect. But it's the institution of monarchy that I, that I think most people would disagree with. I mean, most of the world in 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 the era that most of the world is having away with monarchies. I mean, I I know people uh, constantly bring it up to me that you live in a constitutional monarchy, but in reality, I don't. Canada is not really a constitutional monarchy. I mean, the queen essentially has nothing to do with what we do here in the country. So in the world where most of the people are is doing away with monarchy, um, why would we want to bring one back? But I I also understand the appeal of Reza Pahlavi and the monarchy in the absence of any firm political alternative. And I will say this as someone, like I said, I am a socialist and, and I'm to the left. And I would say this uh, as a failure of the uh, Iranian left movement as well that hasn't been able to come up to theorize to develop an alternative or the liberals or the uh, or the democrats so he is kind of the only figure that could have could demand any semblance of legitimacy so naturally some people might gravitate towards him but i don't think many people and this is my educated guess it's a gut feeling of course in the absence of concrete research we can't really be sure but my gut feeling is telling me that he is not that popular i don't know how much you've looked into this but some argue that uh, the reason that he may have some popularity inside iran is because of uh, the various networks like manoto and bbc persian that are sort of you know have a kind of an obvious pro-monarchist agenda yeah so um that could very well be because um as you know uh, media are play a significant role in shaping public opinion. So that could very well be. But I think when it actually comes down to it, and if there are more progressive alternatives, people wouldn't go back to uh, the monarchy. The reason uh, people chant um, long live the king or Reza Shah, Ruhet Shah, or you know, similar uh, slogans is because the times are so hard and as a nation, we have that tendency. We get nostalgic. We overthrow a government, and then uh, a few decades later, we uh, we grow nostalgic for it, and we keep calling for it to come back. And that's something that's a cycle that we repeat as a nation. It's in our psyche. So the reason people chant for that or call for Reza Shah, I think it shouldn't really be taken as face value. It should be taken as the fact that this is a nation really hungry for change and people are fed up with uncertainty, with uh, insecurity and um, with um, repression. 
Any predictions in terms of uh, what may happen or whether or not the system will weather the storm in the, let's say, next couple of years? Um, I, I know this is not a popular answer, but uh, I think the system will weather the next few years. I don't see, I mean, there are protests, they're significant, and they can, they have the potential to eventually overthrow this government. However, I don't see that happening yet. I don't see um, um, any cracks in the structure of the regime. You see the parliament is doing its thing. The uh, the executive branch is doing its thing. There is, um, yes, there are protests on the ground. There is a certain last minute scrambling of this cabinet minister or the um, um, rants of that um parliament member. However, you don't see, for example, mass exodus of um, parliament members like you, like we saw um, before the revolution happened. There is everything uh, as usual uh, in the government. So I don't see that happening yet. And again, uh, this is a government that has the support of many European nations. It's very repressive and one should never underestimate the power of uh, violence and the repression they can unleash on the people. All right. Thanks for that insight. So um, before we sign off, what projects are you working on now? What are some of your future plans and how can people follow your work? Sure. I'm right now, my uh, my PhD uh, dissertation is actually on the labor movement and um, um, how it's um, it's going to impact the future and where it's going. I haven't finalized my thoughts on that, obviously, because, you know, the book and everything else, but that's what I'm working on. I, um, I'm on Twitter, um, so um, you, people can follow me there. Um, uh, you can always, they can always email me. And uh, I, um, I write, um, mostly in academic journals. But yeah, it would be great to be in touch with specifically people on the ground too, because I'm, um, you know, I have been living abroad for about 30 years now. Um, uh, It would be great to hear from them, receive their insight and see what they think and how they uh, see things going on, especially because, you know, I live in an academic bubble. I understand that. Right. Um, but it would be great to hear from people. Yeah. Uh, well, Maral, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure talking to you and uh, really enjoyed your perspective and, and the conversation. Thank you, Salman John. It was great. Thanks for the time and, you know, for giving me the uh, platform to tell you my thoughts. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Alright, thanks for listening. I hope you found that episode to be productive and interesting. If you did, please share it with your family and friends and review the podcast on iTunes or any of the other platforms. And stay tuned for a lot more great guests coming up. Thanks and take care.